Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now. My name is Zev Yaroslavsky. I'm the director of the Los Angeles Initiative at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and a board member of the Luskin Center for History and Policy. I have also had the great honor of serving the city and county of Los Angeles for nearly 40 years, first as a city council member and then as a county supervisor. It's my pleasure to host today's very special episode of Then and Now. It's special because I'm here with Mayor Eric Garcetti, a longtime friend and the 42nd mayor of the great city of Los Angeles. Eric completed his eighth year as mayor uh, this past summer. And if all goes according to plan with his congressional uh, confirmation pending, uh, he will be headed to India soon as our United States ambassador. He joins us here today to reflect on his quite eventful tenure, the highs and lows, the lessons learned, the great joys, and to share his thoughts about where uh, this city goes from here. Uh, Mayor, I can call you Eric, I think. <laughs> Please. But uh, thank you very much for uh, agreeing to do this uh, podcast. It's it's my first podcast and probably my last, but I'm honored that it's you. This could be the, the beginning of something incredible, uh, at least for you. So thank you, Zeb, for having me. It's an honor. It will be, it will be incredible and lack a lot of credibility. I agree. <laughs> uh, uh, let me ask you first, how is the confirmation process going? And, and uh, give us a window into what's taken so long. <laughs> well, the confirmation process has uh, been, from my perspective, going quite well. You know, you meet and confer with senators who are on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, there's been a lot of activity just in the last few weeks. Many of the colleagues of mine that I went through ambassador school with about a month ago have started to get their hearings, um, been voted through committee. Um, I can't predict when it will get done, but I, I hope to have that hearing at least where the real tough questions are asked and the um, discussion about uh, my nomination would occur in the next probably three or four weeks. What's ambassador school like? You know, it was funny, Zev. I mean, as somebody like you who's lived a public life, it was half career uh, diplomats who are reaching the apex of their careers, who have spent their lifetime either usually at the State Department, in some cases USAID and occasionally from Commerce, um, but mostly from the State Department who are reaching, you know, this. Um, and some of them have been ambassadors before, but are going through to do that. And half were folks who have maybe come in and out of government service or, um, you know, have worked in politics um, so we, as a group, those of us who have been in politics, kind of brought all of the outside facing external skills of, for instance, one of the things was facing a tough press conference. Well, <laughs> I think Xavier Slavsky and Eric Garcetti have faced one or two of those before in our lives. So I was happy to kind of share my tips uh, from what it's like to go through that, how to just speak honestly and not be scared by any questions. But then on the flip side, there's a ton of process of how about to be an effective ambassador. How do you bring multiple agencies together? Um, get the CIA and the Commerce Department and the Defense Attaché and the State Department employees to all think together. Um, something actually being mayor well prepared me for, because that's kind of what I do on a Tuesday, bring different departments together on policy. But there's so much to learn about the State Department and those folks taught me a lot in a very short period of time. So despite my best efforts to fail out, they passed me through and I graduated. So we'll have some more conversation about this towards the end, but I, 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 
couldn't help but notice that uh, you've got some pretty big shoes to fill as U.S. ambassador uh, to yeah. India, at least two of whom I remember, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, who was a President Kennedy's appointee, and Daniel P Patrick Moynihan. Uh, those two come to mind. Uh, how do you feel about that, uh, those shoes? Or, uh, you know, I've, I've been reading. Uh, they're both kind of uh, political heroes of mine, and so it is very humbling um, to think about where they and Chester Bowles and um, Tom Pickering, and Dick Celeste, the former governor of Ohio and others, you know, real giants who have um, sometimes gone in and out. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was interesting. We both served in the Navy. We both taught as professors. We both served in urban government, both run for local elected office. Um, and now, you know, if confirmed, I'll get to uh, um, follow his footsteps in India and, you know, those folks who are both intellectuals and who have served have always been inspiration to me. I haven't had much time to think over the last 20 years. When I was a professor, I used to joke I had all the time in the world to think, not a lot of power to do anything. Now I have a lot of power to do things and not a lot of time to think. I hope uh, as ambassador, I may have the space and place to do both, to act and to convene and to make a difference in the world, but to also think about you know, to punctuate um, in a way that when you're an elected official, the local level, we don't get a lot of commas in our life, many periods to finish a thought, exclamations to celebrate something, let alone question marks to ask, you know, what comes next. And I hope that uh, they can be an example for me. One last note is I, I've been reading John Kenneth Galbraith's book, where he has literally almost a daily entry. It's his journal, and it's notes from an ambassador. Um, very different time, obviously very different context. But from everything that he ate to the little behind the scenes interactions of what it's like when uh, your president meets with the prime minister or foreign ministers and our secretary of state get together, it's really been enlightening to see the basic work of politics, whether you're an ambassador or mayor, is trying to reach people's hearts. Um, it's to deal with human nature, their needs, their interests, and bring people together to realize it's better when we find common ground than when we just shout about what separates us. Well, good luck, uh, and uh, we'll we'll talk about that a little at the end. Uh, you know, this is the Center for History and Policy uh, who, who sponsors this this podcast. So let's talk a little bit about your your take on on the history of Los Angeles as you considered running for mayor, uh, even for the city council, and in in your conduct of the office. Uh, you know what what uh, what about the city of L.A. has uh, has informed your your time in office, uh, what what did you draw on uh, from from LA history? What mayors uh, of of your uh, have you found to be uh, you know particularly noteworthy in your career? You know, I'm one of these strange, like you natives of LA, um, fourth generation if you count my great grandparents who came here uh, when they were young. Um, and so I think I'm first and foremost just informed by being a Valley boy whose dad grew up in South LA, mom in West LA, and grandparents on the East Side who kind of always felt at home everywhere in the city and realize how many amazing stories there are. And, you know, when I was running, I was made fun of a little bit uh, by one of my opponents uh, for saying I'd be kind of a storyteller in chief. And I didn't mean I'd tell stories. I meant that I think the first and the most important defining human characteristic we have is the ability to narrate, narrate our collective life. And how do you narrate that for Los Angeles? What is the story of Los Angeles past, present, future? Um, when very few of us, uh, get the real honor of going deep into people's lives in the diverse geography and cultural, um, you know, pockets of Los Angeles. We all drive through it. So we're like, we know LA, but when's the last time, you know, you were uh, 
down in Canterbury Knolls or spent time in Wilmington or really went deep and listened to folks that are out in Porter Ranch or, um, you know, in, in Lincoln Heights. To me, it was the inspiration was the people of L.A. and kind of, you know, the triumphs and tragedies. Um, I have to give voice to our toughest moments, our greatest challenges, our moments of complete tragedy, fires and shootings, um, homelessness, the individual stories, and somehow knit them together with our greatest triumphs. Those things were L.A. engineers, a a rover that goes onto Mars, um, the place that we have in the world telling the stories of our time through Hollywood, um, figuring out how to build things and listening to folks. So I think my inspiration has come from my city, first and foremost, but I've always tried to be a kind of mayor and before that a council member who listens to the world because the world cares much more about L.A. than we realize. They know this city before they've ever visited here. And those who have come here or visited here or invested here or just have family here, they really see L.A. as a microcosm of the world and they want L.A. to succeed. And it's always helpful to see both our problems, but also our successes through their eyes. That's given me a lot of inspiration over the last eight years. Any mayor that you channel uh, based on your historical knowledge? A little bit of all of them. If you went back before Tom Bradley, I couldn't find one that wasn't either corrupt or quite racist. So it was really tough to, you know, a lot of them came in as anti-corruption fighters and then got kicked out or, you know, Frank Shaw got kicked out of office in a recall because he became corrupt. Um, you know, this was a wild town before, even though I went back to the 19th century and was, uh, you know, the I read about the first Jewish mayor who was the city council president uh, who became mayor for two weeks until they realized the Jew was in charge and <laughs> voted him out. But, you know, there was uh, there are people who um, some of what they've done has been inspiring. But as I look back at the last four or five, there's bits and pieces from each. I mean, Tom Bradley met that moment and really put L.A. on the world stage. And when I looked at a reelection video, somebody sent me that somebody put up on YouTube. They're like, I'm building out a new international terminal. I'm bringing the Olympics. Our port is humming like it never has before, and we're investing in downtown, I kind of realized we don't do anything new. We just do it for a new moment because we're bringing the Olympics. I opened up the new international terminal. The port is breaking records, and and we're obviously investing in in housing, almost doubling the pace since I've been mayor from when I started. Uh, So he certainly inspires. I think, you know, um, Mayor Viragosa focusing really clearly on a couple things got me to not always try to do all the above, even though that's my nature and it's the demands of the job. There's 40 departments and hundreds of initiatives. Um, and, and Mayor Han, who made tough decisions. I think he inspired me that like, don't worry about the criticism of today or the headlines of tomorrow. Think about yourself looking back 10 years from now, did I make the right decision? And that's something I've really tried to teach my team is don't worry about the noise in the moment. It's always really loud. And the the decisions you make that quiet people today may not be looked back on as very smart. And sometimes the ones that Mayor Bloomberg taught me this, the ones that upset people the most right now are often the ones that with a little distance of time, 10 years later, are the smartest ones you can make. Well, Han Han lost his job. Uh, was a one-term mayor because of two decisions he made uh, on the keeping the city together, uh, opposing the secession and, and uh, not reappointing uh Police Chief Bernard Parks, uh, you were you were there then, right? I, I witnessed that, and I witnessed it with my father too. Sir, for two terms as district attorney, and didn't get elected to a third term. Um, you know that you also do have to. You can't just ignore what people are saying. You can't ignore the politics and the coalitions. You do have to check in and try to bring those together. I guess 
what I would say is just don't let that be the only thing that guides you. Um, yeah. You know, don't, don't be hyper political and don't be brave, but naive. You played uh mayor on, on a television series uh, on a few occasions. Uh, obviously that's not what the job is all about or, or uh, it, it's not what, uh, what it's cracked up to be on television, but how, how did you find the job? Uh, you know, what, what, what can you say about the job of mayor? Uh, did, did, was it what you expected? Uh, were there any huge surprises? I mean, we can get to the major, you know, the pandemic and all is obviously a major surprise. But in what you thought the job would be day in and day out, uh, what, how, how did you, uh, how, how do you assess that in terms of your, your experience? What surprised you? What didn't? What did you expect, et cetera? Well, you know, being mayor, you can live right by mayors, as I did for 12 years, interact closely with them, and you think you know what it is. But like most jobs in the world, you don't really know until you get there. And, you know, I was president of the city council, but uh, that's not really an executive position outside of maintaining the council. This was the first chief executive position I had. And our city's charter says you are the CEO of the city. Um, I took that very seriously. I read the charter. Um, I felt that it would guide me. Things like General managers are supposed to get yearly reviews, but no mayors had ever done that. Re-interviewing all of the general managers when I came in because that power to hire and fire the leaders of our city, um, you know, there was a go along, get along, just inherit whoever is there. Don't ask them to set metrics or goals or accountability and just let them stay. And that kind of snapped everybody, I think, into action that this was going to be a mayor guided by real outcomes, um, not just outputs of measuring, um, you know, the things that don't matter. I guess the biggest surprise has been, A, how much I liked being a chief executive. It's kind of like a, it felt like a um, a custom-made suit that I pulled off the rack, you know, like this is my brand. Um, the ability to, as much as I loved being a legislator and bringing people together in the city council when I was city council president, um, I, I love that there's people who really do answer to you quickly. These people who run huge departments like our sanitation, Department of Water and Power, airport, port. Second, I was surprised by how difficult some of the small things are and vice versa, how easy some of the big ones were. How long did we talk about getting public transportation to LAX but never got it done? But within a year, I put that in the ground irreversibly. Um, we tried you know, for a decade to really ramp up uh, what was done by you and Antonio and others to get the first kind of extension of a, of a subway and light rail system, but we did it with a permanent tax, um, with a record vote. Um, you know. Uh, raising the minimum wage, making community college free, even though I have nothing to do formally with the community colleges. Those big things surprised me sometimes that if you really spend your capital well, how much you can get done. Second lesson was how important relationships are. Um, it's You know this having been in the city and the county. Traditionally, most cities who aren't LA City and LA County and supervisors often love to hate whoever's the mayor. It's almost structural. We get 90% of the headlines and we're only 40% of the vote. And so I wanted to change that. I wanted to come with some humility up the hill and meet with supervisors, uh, not just demand that they come to my office. I convened every quarter, my 87 fellow mayors of the 88 cities, so that we went to their towns and they could show off what was happening. We could work together on things like Measure M for transportation, the Olympic bid, uh, work together on things like resilience for our earthquakes and, and pass on best practices to each other. Um, and I try to do that nationally and internationally by leading some of those global mayor groups. So those relationships are so critical because you never know when you're going to need to call them in. I guess third, I'd say, and probably the biggest surprise is just how exhausting it is. 
and how thankless it can be. Um, I, I feel it's the best job I will ever have, Zev. I'm, I'm very much convinced, and many mayors and ex-mayors told me this especially. But I'm reminded of what uh, somebody recently told me President Kennedy was asked about a year into his presidency, what do you think of the job? And he said, best job in the world, just not right now. And I think <laughs> that's kind of where we're at as I watch mayors who are very popular and could get reelected to a second term in Atlanta, Seattle, saying, I'm not going to run for a second term. As I talk with my fellow mayors in this toughest couple of years where people's homes are attacked and people are just, any float, any idea and social media just like rages against it. That space and that place Yes, to work hard, to deal with critics, which is part of the job, but not to have the noise dominate so much and for people to dehumanize the human beings in these positions is something that worries me for whomever will come next or look at these jobs everywhere. We saw that happen in the House of Representatives. It's become that in the Senate. Our national politics are infected with that more in a partisan way. But it's almost like the Trump era gave everybody permission to be a-holes to each other. (laughs) They gave everybody permission to, if I feel righteous about my cause, I don't have to worry about that being a human being. Just rage at what you're unhappy about instead of finding any common ground for compromise, work together, and building community. So you... uh... You you raise an, a question I was going to ask you about the, just the tenor of politics and 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 the political discourse, not just locally but nationally, internationally for that matter. Uh, how do you how do you deal with that? Uh, how, how do you filter out the noise, as you call it, and uh, and and focus on what's important? You know, you got to just keep showing up. Uh, there's days you don't want to get out of bed. Uh, I mean, all of us felt that in the last year and a half. But imagine you know leading the city through the toughest decisions of of not only my lifetime, but maybe the city's life um, around COVID and closing businesses down and telling people what they could and couldn't do, um, trying to prevent people from dying and filling up our hospitals. Um, I think you have to keep showing up and modeling what humanity looks like, being humble enough to admit mistakes. I loved, uh, it was it was the most exhausting time of my life, but and I think I did it 97 times, but primetime briefings on COVID to a city, you have to build your own relationship with your people and you have to tend to it. In other words, you have to keep letting them know who you are and letting them know who they are, telling those stories so that if somebody, you know, is upset because, uh, you know, the vaccine clinic went down or the testing clinic went down for one day because people didn't want to show up because they weren't sure because of the unrest on the street. And the buzz is that the city's closing it down to punish protesters against police, which couldn't have been further from the truth. You just have to show up and say, no, calmly, that's not what happened. The volunteers who we depend on themselves wanted to take a day and we'll be back open tomorrow and just keep going. Um, You have to show that there is still some sensibility, some maturity out there, some calmness. And uh, though your temptation is always to like fire back when things get fiery, I don't think that's really what people want in leaders. I think they actually, as much as the media dines out on it, certainly social media does on the conflict, they actually want people who work well together or at least are trying to work together on those things. I also think it's important to keep some rootedness. You've you've had this with your family. Um, I said early on as mayor, I wasn't going to go to five or six events every single night. So I figured out a way to do five or six recordings that people could play at their fundraisers for charities and other things. But to be home with a daughter who at the time was one and a half, Chamber of Commerce won't remember if I was there eight times in eight years or three times in eight years personally. But my daughter would remember if I was home. You sure and will. So you know, I think yeah. that's the other thing that roots you and helps you get through it. Realizing. You are not the mayor. That is your job. In my case, I'm Eric Garcetti. I'm Maya's daddy. I'm Amy's husband. 
um, and I'll pour everything into my job, but that's what it is, a job. And you have to be able to not uh, define yourself by the title. So when you ran in 2013, your slogan, basically your message was back to basics. Uh, as you look back uh, over eight years now as mayor, um, what kind of what grade do you give yourself on getting the city back to basics? Well, I think mostly maybe two thirds of it, I would give it a, you know, and I always hate these grading things, but I'd say we achieved what we wanted to do. We we saw since Reardon, no investment, who never wanted to raise rates for water and power, no investment in our DWP. So that literally we had uh, uh, wires holding up uh, the poles. We had uh, huge pipes bursting like we saw at UCLA my first year. I mean, there had been disinvestment. Our sidewalks were broken. Our streets every year that I had been in office and probably from when you started had gone down in the rating. Now you look at it every single year, they went up more sidewalks fixed than ever. We're investing three times the amount in pipes and in our power poles. We're Look at the airport. We've redone every terminal um, or built new ones. Um, we're bringing public transportation in there, the port investments. You know, I mentioned Measure M. So those basic things that people depend on, I think we've come so far. The flip side, though, and having been a former council member, is a lot of how you feel about the city is what you see in the city. And I think the crisis of homelessness and put that into a pandemic interaction where people, it seemed like our freeways and our state partners stopped painting out graffiti and nobody uh, should have moved anybody who was an encampment. So they grew even more. It's tough to not move through the city and say, that's a pretty basic thing that we need to all pour hundred percent of our energy into, which is something I shared with the governor. Uh, he put in his budget, the cleaning up of our freeways. We're putting a whole core of folks out there to just spruce the city back up. But we also have to get real, I think, about the conversation around homelessness in a city that's pouring more into it than any local uh, set of governments in the history, at least in modern history of the country, that we're not going to end homelessness until we get to some root causes and some real comprehensive solutions that require federal government, a right to housing, um, making maybe Section 8 or housing choice vouchers and entitlement instead of just a random lottery for one out of eight people, a mental health system that prevents people from getting there in the first place. And seeing this as a reflection of an unequal economic system and insufficient housing that we have not built for you know, 40, 50 years. Um, so I think, you know, it's difficult to look at the city and not say that we're collectively failing when it comes to that, though I do think good things are starting to happen even in these recent months and will in the next few years from what we've, we've queued up. Um, but the other piece, holding government accountable. I mean, don't take my word for it. Bloomberg, uh, What Works Cities, which looks at every big city in America, came, looked at LA. We were the only city to win gold in the next year, one of only two cities to win platinum for the way we kind of get down to governing through metrics, accountability, open data. Um, the way that we've managed it, I think we've changed the culture. And that will never make a headline. That's difficult to see. But if you talk to some of the folks that were here a decade ago versus now, there really is a culture of accountability from the public servants that I think we all depend on from our parks to our streets to other things that that might not have been across the board before. So the the homeless issue, as you know better than anybody, is is the is kind of the metric that everybody is measuring city performance, county performance, state performance in. And people are furious, angry, perplexed, flummoxed. You know, uh, why why is it? And it's not a new issue. It's it's an issue that's been around a century or more. What what can you say about what what your administration, prior administrations have done? More importantly, what would you say to the next mayor? Of what needs to be done? What do we need to what do we need to do about affordable housing? Uh, in which is part of the problem, right? Uh, what what do you? 
you know, people look at, at more and more encampments. Um, and I think part of the problem is that there are encampments and, and with tents and it looks much bigger than, uh, than it was 10 years ago, uh, but still it's growing and all the sensors. So tell me, what do you say to your, your constituents uh, who say what I just said? I think you've heard it a thousand times or more. I say, I agree with you. It breaks my heart every single day. And let me walk you through where I think we can make a difference and are making a difference. You know, trauma meets high rent is what homelessness is simplified. And those traumas are as diverse as we are as human beings, from foster care system to war and PTSD, sexual, domestic violence, um, loss of job, et cetera. We know the different traumas. High rent is really a reflection of not just the rent levels, but the infrastructure we build and the economy that we have. Um, and so when those two things conspire together and overlay to that health and mental health in particular, uh, you get um, homelessness. You're right. It's been here for decades. It was higher um, per capita uh, during Bradley administration at a couple different points. It, it recurs over time. And if we want to live in a country that doesn't have homelessness, the only countries that don't do have a right to housing, which sounds expensive, but I believe it's always cheaper than the incredible cost of our criminal justice system, our housing system, our shelter system, our uh, social services system of not housing these problems indoors and then dealing with them. Um, my philosophy has been do everything that everybody's ever asked for. And by that metric, and it's interesting, I think we've done most of that. Pass a measure. People never thought it would pass. We passed not just one on housing. We promised 10,000 units that's going to come in two years early, 1,000 units more and less subsidy per unit than we promised. Um, check. A second one, the county passed a quarter cent sales tax that I leaned into with Supervisor Ridley Thomas at the time. Nobody thought it would pass. That passed. Check. Um, get an inclusionary zoning or linkage fee thing, which has been talked about. It's essentially a fancy way of saying when you build housing, make sure that people who build market rate housing have to pay into or build affordable housing. It's been talked about since Tom Bradley tried to do it in the mid 70s. We got it through. Check. Get the state engaged and involved. I went up when it was Governor Brown. He said homelessness isn't, your, isn't our problem. That's your local problem. But leading the biggest city mayors, the top 11 cities, the time we got him to come in and now Governor Newsom has added to that. Things like Project Room Key, which allow us to put people into hotels when they're available. Project Home Key, which allows us to buy existing buildings we're doing with them. We did 20 of those buildings just last year alone. Shelter, people said we need more shelter. Built 12 of them. We built 28, Zev, in two years, more than anywhere else. And we had to depopulate them a little bit during COVID, but we've got 28 congregate shelters with services on site, not the old shelters where you got to pack your stuff up. You can stay for as long as you need to until you get into permanent housing. Tiny home villages. People said, that's a great solution. We've done seven of them so far and many more counting. So I'm kind of like test everything, prefab, permanent supportive housing, shelter, more case managers. We had 25 people in the county doing outreach when I started. Thanks to the measures we passed, it's up to about 250, but I think we probably could use 2,000 people doing outreach. And we have to hold those outreach workers accountable, not just to, here's a, a toothbrush and some advice, but what agencies are the best at getting them into housing, as we saw in Echo Park and Venice, where you know we're able, in the Venice operation, more than 200 people in six weeks uh, with people working together, 90% retained and on their way to permanent housing. I guess I would point to the success we've had in one area, which is veterans uh, homelessness is down 80% of, since I became mayor. And when people say, well, how is that the case? The feds stepped up. They made housing vouchers available. They raised them to the level of our rents here. We've had a working group between city, county, and um, our federal government, and we just 
plowed away at it. You know, veterans aren't any different than non-veterans. We're as diverse as the rest of the population. We're young, we're old, we're straight, we're gay, we're, you know, white, black, brown, native, Asian. I think it's a real model that now, and this is what I asked President Biden to put into his platform when I became his co-chair, put in a right to housing, an entitlement. We don't let people go hungry in this country. We don't put a limit on food stamps. If you're poor enough, you get to eat. We don't put a limit on Medicaid, which we call Medi-Cal, if you need healthcare and you're indigent. But for housing, like I said before, it's a one in eight chance in the city that you'll get one of those vouchers and you'll wait years and you probably won't find half the time an apartment that will even take them. Fix that piece and we could actually fix homelessness. What is your view on the commoditization of real estate, which seems to have uh, really accelerated in the last decade or, or maybe even a little less since the Great Recession, uh, which have driven the prices of real estate and rents uh, sky high? Uh, what, what's your take on that? What can be done about it? It, it, it? Is there anything that could be done about it? We can either treat housing less as a commodity and more as a utility. Um, you know, we have very little public housing compared to New York City. But one of the reasons I love Project Home Key is this becomes social housing that our housing authority or our housing department owns um, and can maintain well. And its incentive isn't just to keep giving returns to investors. Look at the hyper capitalist countries and, and cities like Hong Kong and Singapore. Nobody would say those aren't hyper capitalist, but they understood that housing is really more of a utility than just part of a marketplace. And so public-private partnerships allowed them to build the density that they needed. It's Public housing isn't seen as just something for the poorest there. It's a middle-class thing. And people can even own it in those places as well. Um, so, you know, I think that if we don't get real about that, as well as just our zoning and entitlements, you know, I think uh, you and I might be on different sides of this one. I don't know. But when uh, SB 9 and SB 10 passed, which will allow people to cut their single home properties in half and then do two, their council opposed it, but I didn't. And I publicly said, I'd like to see it move forward. And George Skelton wrote a piece recently in the LA Times that I thought was brilliant. He said, do I want this? No, not in my neighborhood where I have single family homes, but do I want my kids to stay here? Yeah, so maybe it's okay that it got signed. Um, if we, we have used a number of things from our accessory dwelling units um, laws to our transit-oriented development that are now 75% all the housing since I've been there. So ADUs were maybe 2% when I started, they're 25% of all new units and 50% of all our new units are along the transit corridors because when Measure J passed, it gave me the power to basically say as high and as dense as we wanted to go as long as those folks were building extremely low and low income housing on their own dime. And so we've gone from 8,000 units a year to 18,000 in the city. But if you look at the goal of what we need in, in the area, we need to build in the Southland the equivalent of the entire San Fernando Valley on top of it. And as you said, well, and I agree with you, there's a lot of places that are already zoned for that that we're not maximizing. Why? Let's get to the bottom of that. And in other places, let's really make those investments on, on creative ways to still have beautiful communities. You walk through a London, you walk through you know, different places. There's, it's not high density in lots of neighborhoods, but it certainly is higher than what we're addicted to here. Um, and I just don't think that our kids and grandkids will be able to afford to stay here if we don't do these things. They may not be able to afford to stay here if, if uh, the commoditization of real estate continues to go the way it's going and hedge Absolutely. funds and, and high tech yeah. buy up single family homes in lower income communities, and drive the drive the rents in the, in the most vulnerable uh, communities in, in, in our city. Uh, people who have a bullseye on their back, um, 
and, and rent control does not, even in the city of Los Angeles, doesn't apply to single family homes. And a big chunk of the people who live in the city in single family homes are renters. Yeah. Well, we have a higher percentage of renters now in, New- in LA than we do in New York City, which is crazy. You know, you think about how those places look, you're more likely to own in New York City than in Los Angeles. And I don't know if you saw what happened. It's just, it was an advisory vote. But in Berlin, in the uh, German elections that just occurred, uh, they put something forward to try to buy there's something like 11 trillion euros worth of housing that used to be public was sold when they were had to pay off their debt. And, and they're looking at whether they can legally just claim it basically, um, you know, what we would say eminent domain it, but pay fair market and make it public uh, social housing again. I mean, that's how desperate it is in a lot of these markets around the world where you're right. It becomes more important to protect markets and investment than people and livability. Did that pass? In it did. It's just advisory, but it passed. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the Olympics. Let's talk about the Olympics for a second. Yes. Uh, everything was moving along swimmingly, and perhaps it's still moving along swimmingly. And then, then the COVID hit, and Tokyo was a poster child for for what uh, the former British Prime Minister Macmillan once called events. You know, he was asked, uh, how does his agenda get filled every day? He said, events, my dear boy, events. <laughs> uh, so this big event uh, brought in front and center, the, the potential financial risk that the Olympics uh, pose to, to any city that is the host. Uh, what's your, what can you tell the people of Los Angeles and beyond? Uh, how, how protected is the city? Uh, let's hope we don't have a pandemic again, uh, at least not between now and 2028, but, uh, but recessions happen, events happen. How is this city protected this time around? Uh, compared to 1984, when there was actually a charter amendment which precluded the city from from spending money, now now you don't have that protection. What what protections have you put in place? Well, um, look, Los Angeles thrives off of crisis moments in the Olympics. It's like history repeating itself. In the 30s, the Great Depression, nobody wanted to do the Olympics. We had bid 10 years earlier, and they, they didn't even know the name of LA. They said that town by Hollywood, give it to them, and we got the 32 Olympics in '84 when the the movement was bankrupt and uh, we had just boycotted Moscow. You know, uh, we wound up not hosting, not just hosting it, but developing a new and profitable model that still invests in our communities of color, low-income communities through LA 84 Foundation today. I am, uh, I have 100% confidence, um, and that's, uh, I know a high percentage, but 100% confidence, we will do it again. We could have hosted the Olympics probably with two months notice. We have essentially everything built here, a new infrastructure since 1984, and the sponsorships that have already been pledged and are paying in let alone the $160 million that I negotiated to go second after Paris, we already have positive cash flow coming in and investing in our communities. And um, even if, God forbid, there was a pandemic or people couldn't come, I still think we would see a net gain. But not just a financial net gain. We have to ask ourselves, who do we want to be and what do we want the legacy of these games to be? One is I hope it's a rebooted Olympic movement, which is a very utopian idea, by the way. I know sometimes it gets criticism from the far left or the far right, um, there's nothing more utopian than the idea. And I think the practice, as one African Olympian told me, like when we march in, all the nations are equal. I feel as equal as the Americans and the Europeans and everybody else. Um, it's the place where North Koreans and South Koreans eat together uh, in the, the athletes village. To me, it is a, a movement I've always loved because of its positive um, social um, qualities. But here we got want to say, who do we want to be as Los Angeles? What face do we want to show off to the world? Not just of LA, but of America, where we haven't hosted since 1996 a summer games. 
to me, that's going to be about social inclusion. That's going to be about building out an infrastructure, but not making the mistake most cities do of building an infrastructure for the Olympics, which only lasts two and a half weeks, and then hoping it works for the people. We passed all of our measures for the people. Measure M had nothing to do with the Olympics. It had to do with us. The airport we're improving because we need to improve the airport and so on and so forth. We'll make it work for the Olympics, but we inverted that. Uh, lastly, the protections. I fully believe and uh, predict that before we get to the Olympics, the risk, the remaining risk, which we had to take on just as a legal measure, um, the city will probably be bought out of. Um, and I think there's insurance that can cover that so that we could have the nonprofit LA, uh, LA 28 committee basically as we talked about in our bid, take the city out 100%. So you don't have to take my word for it. But the question is going to be for the city, the money that's produced, and we're doing the games agreement right now, how do we ensure that the public has a say in where that gets spent in the future? So that as club sports expands, and if you're a low-income child, you cannot afford, your parents can't afford the way sports has moved away from little leagues to, to traveling teams. And how do we ensure that black and brown communities get swim lessons like we're doing right now with the early Olympic money? How can we produce winners that might be in those Olympics growing up in some of our poorest neighborhoods today? And how do we keep that going afterwards? So I, I know we will make a, a net gain from this. I know it will have an incredibly positive impact, but I think the challenge for all of us is what do we wanna to show to the world? How do we wanna have built enough housing to deal with homelessness by then? What sort of transportation woes will we have addressed and improved traffic by then? Um, because long after folks leave from the Paralympics and the Olympics, everything else is left behind for us. So think about yourselves, think selfishly, and I believe the games will be successful, not vice versa. One of the principal sources of revenue for the games is ticket revenue. Uh, and if nobody's traveling, um, that, that was part of Tokyo's problem, right? Uh, among other things, they had a capital issue too, but, but and when the games finally hit, uh, they had a, a ticket revenue problem. What, what kind of, uh, you, the insurance policy that you're talking about, have, have you gotten that? Has the Olympic committee gotten that yet? Or, or is that? No, I don't want to get ahead of the committee, but I think it's pretty strong. And I think there's folks who have absolutely said they would, you know, underwrite it at some sort of cost and the sorts of sponsorships that are already coming in are, uh, above even early estimates. So I feel very confident. You're right. It's about a third, third, third. The Olympics gives you about a third. A third comes from sponsorships, though. I think that will grow to as much as half um, and a third traditionally from ticket sales. But, you know, Casey Wasserman, who's our, our chair, um, who really understands the economics of sports, has done some marvelous things. Like, for instance, we get to sell ticket packages um, to other Olympics leading up to 2028 on behalf of not just the U.S. kind of packages, but other countries as well. So there will be revenues from whatever Olympics happen. I think, I really do think Tokyo will be once in a lifetime. Uh, and it was a very unfortunate moment. I mean, forget the Olympics, God help us all. If in seven years, the world is not traveling, um, we've got bigger problems than the Olympics yeah, to contend exactly. economically. Um, but even in that case, I think there's enough of a cushion that, that you could off uh, the TV rights is really where the money is made. And people loved watching the Olympics, even when they're in Tokyo without fans. So on, um, on the, uh, we talked about homelessness. The other big issue you've had to face, and probably will those two issues, pandemic and, and homelessness, will will define your memories of this job, at least the latter part of your administration. Um, you get high marks for uh, for the role you played in in uh, bringing the city and the region together. Uh, you've got the biggest bully pulpit in in Los Angeles in Southern California. Uh, when you call a press conference at five o'clock, the, the television stations cover it. Um, when the Board of Supervisors wasn't 
um, even in, uh, in they're, they're the executive, but they're not an executive person. So they, uh, by definition, it's, it's harder for them to communicate. So you stepped into that vacuum uh, and got high marks for it for me in, uh, as well. Uh, I, I marveled at the way you did that um, and, and, it, and did it responsibly in consultation with the governor's office, with the board of supervisors, with Barbara Ferrer, the public health officer and, and, and the other cities. Um, you spoke to my class, you may recall, about a year and a half ago of my public policy class of graduate students. And I hope I'm not burning you. You asked, you asked it to be off the record, but it's a year and a half ago. So Go ahead. It's fine. <laughs> and you're going to be in What's India. off the record, as they say to politicians. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be in India. They can go find you in New Delhi. <laughs> uh, but you said uh, you, you made an observation about the governance uh, framework of this region of Southern California, LA County and beyond. Uh, and if my memory serves me correctly, you said something to the effect, you're not just the mayor of Los Angeles, you're the mayor of LA County, you're the mayor of San Bernardino and Riverside and Ventura and Orange, uh, all of whom portions of which uh, at least uh, will uh, uh, hang on your every word. Uh, and you express some frustration about the governance. Would, would you care to share that with a broader audience than my 30 students? Sure. I mean, I think, look, if we're honest with ourselves and put together, put, put aside all the power that we hold. And I've often said the power that you have is reflective of what you're willing to give up or share, not just what you're willing to cling to. Um, I believe that we would design if we knew this was going to be a 19 million person metro area, the third largest metro economy in the world, basically tied for second with New York after Tokyo. Uh, if we knew the importance of how this was a Pacific century and Latin America and Asian economies would grow. Um, we would design probably the governance of Los Angeles very different. We wouldn't say, let's chop this up into five counties. We wouldn't say, let's chop up the biggest one into 88 cities and unincorporated areas, um, the smallest of which you know have a few dozen people and are industrial cities. And the largest is LA with 4 million. And I think we make the ability to confront our toughest problems so much more difficult. And I'm indebted to Barbara Ferrer, the supervisors who were really incredible partners, as well as my fellow mayors like uh, Robert Garcia in, in Long Beach during the pandemic. We worked exceptionally well together because we had invested in relationships. And I did uh, try to lead with humility and friendship as well as strength with them long before this moment. But it's not a coherent way to govern. We don't have a public health department in the city of LA, but we started putting together when at the time the county was saying, don't uh, test people without um, without symptoms, for instance. Um, but I thought it was a good idea and history kind of bore out that it was because about 40% of the cases we caught were people who were asymptomatic and spreading. Um, but we didn't have that. So we had to build that with our fire department and volunteers through the organization core, which Sean Penn and Ann Lee started. Um, you know, you can work around these things. You can hack homelessness, education, uh, community college, uh, public health. Um, you can hack traffic. You know, there's MTA where, that brings us together on the boards, but it's not a very coherent way to govern. And most other cities, like you look at Indianapolis when it became Unigov, it took the neighboring cities around the central Indianapolis area and unified. You look at an area like Atlanta, where, which is more like us, but even smaller, 500,000 people in a multi-million person area, those places that divide themselves up dilute their own power. So I think it is time maybe to ask those questions, not with set conclusions, but do we have the departments that we need in the city of LA? Could we ever look at the city becoming a county? I don't hold out hope that I think 
many of the other 87 cities would say, hey, let's form a, a big city altogether, because I think that identity is so clear, but maybe some authorities could transcend the lines to allow solutions to traffic and homelessness not to be held up by the differences between city borders. When most Angelinos don't always even know where they live, I have people from Glendale, for instance, come up to me all the time and say, hey, I voted for you. And when I ask them where they live, they say, Glendale, I'm like, you couldn't have, but thank you for your vote. <laughs> or when I make these addresses and somebody in the Inland Empire said, thanks for that news. And I'm, you know, I'm wearing a mask. And I said, well, I don't know if that's the mandate where you live, but but it's a good idea anyway. And during the, during the pandemic, you know, I was proud we were first to shut down restaurants and movie theaters, the first city in America, the first to do that testing um, that I mentioned, the first to mandate masks anywhere, the first to go into our skilled nursing facilities, the first to bring down black deaths to under the population when they were double. And the list goes on and on. My point is that when you have this sort of platform, don't be afraid to lead and don't be afraid to encourage others to follow along because just by sheer weight, you can do that. Just don't do it in an arrogant way. Uh, who, who, uh, who are who's your most uh, which philosopher is and which historian has been most influential in your in your career? Gosh, um, <laughs> it's a really good question. I, you know, philosophers are less kind of I think the the classics than pulling together stuff that crosses between religious uh, religion and philosophy. You know, so yeah, there's the Spinozas of the world and others, but I, it's the studying the Talmud with my rabbi Sharon Brous during you know some of the toughest moments. It's it's Indian um, classics like uh, Ramayana, uh, Ramayana, uh, the you know way that I looked at read Unamuno, a great Spanish kind of philosopher and writer over the years. I wouldn't say any one person. I'm I'm pretty eclectic, um, and I do think that uh, it's difficult to find heroes and pure truth uh, speakers. But if you put together enough things that resonate with you, you can find those guides. Um, uh, and I'd say those are probably the main ones. I think uh, Kearns is obviously a great, great describer of key decision makers at key moments. And for me, that's been very helpful. I always feel like she's writing to a, two audiences, the broad audience, and then a few of us that are actually in these positions um, to understand them in a different way. Um, and she's brilliant. Yeah. Um, tell tell our audience a little bit about what you expect uh, in in India, first of all, why why did you accept this post? Uh, you know, Mayor of Los Angeles, Ambassador to India. What's the nexus? Uh, I, it's a simple reason. Um, I love Joe Biden, and I think when your country calls, you say yes. It definitely wasn't on the map. I wasn't lobbying for a job. In fact, turned down doing something right now in in his administration when people were filling up our hospitals, and I just thought that's not the time to leave the city when um, you needed most. But I think uh, when your nation needs you, whether it was joining the Navy as a reservist and right after 9-11, running for city council, when I never really, I probably couldn't name my city council member growing up. It was Marvin Browdy, I know now, but I wasn't politically astute uh, to the local stuff. I just think these doors open. Second, India, in particular for me personally, though, I don't know if the president knew this, has always been something that's pulled at me since I went there as a teenager, since my first year at Columbia College as an undergraduate. My randomly assigned roommate's father became the U.S. ambassador to India. I went and visited New Delhi, stayed where, if I'm confirmed, I'll be living. And from then, I just was off to the races, taking Hindi and Urdu as an undergrad and studying all the Indian classics. I was going to live there my junior year abroad. And I've continued to do a lot of work in India over the years. But um, I think, lastly, it's just an incredible moment. The things I care most about, Zev, the climate emergency, um, ending COVID, uh, thinking about our security and uh, the rise of kind of Pacific, Indo-Pacific conflicts. The U.S.-India relationship, to me, 
is one of the most interesting, most important, and to me, hopefully one of the brightest spots um, of our global relations in the next few years. And we can't succeed on climate or COVID or any of these things without India succeeding too. So if I can be that bridge, uh, to me, it was the door that opened and the universe almost calling me back to something uh, and a place I thought I'd spend time with when I was time in when I was younger. And your relationship with with President Biden, which is close uh, and personal, uh, that that gives you some cachet or some effectiveness as an ambassador um, 10,000 miles away than than even a career diplomat or especially career diplomat would have. Is that is that a fair assessment? It, it may be. I mean, I'm very close to the president. I was one of his four uh, you know, national chairs of his campaign and one of the four people he asked to find a great vice president who happened to be our senator and who herself is Indian-American, Kamala Harris. Um, and I hope that that relationship, you know, when you're ambassador, it's interesting. People think you work for the Department of State and certainly you work, uh, you know, you're employed by the Department of State, but you're in charge of all the American agencies and you're technically the president's envoy. So I'm going to, of course, consult closely with the Secretary of State and everybody at the National Security Agency. But if you look at how those positions are designed, it's really to be that envoy for the president, the president essentially is representative in country. And to me, I think that's worthy of the respect we should have for India. And in fact, if you look at those great envoys in the past, it was that they were close to the president. And when we get difficult moments or great moments of opportunity, they need to know that you can um, speak for and get to the president quickly, something that... Um, if needed, I can absolutely do. So I, I hope that for India, they're as excited as I am to have um, that close relationship with a president I know who is so fond of this country and that reflects the people-to-people ties uh, embodied in Kamala Harris, but also every Indian student that studies here and every person who's ever been there from here uh, that I've never been, in my opinion, stronger. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, I have a feeling we haven't heard the last of Eric Garcetti, uh, even post-ambassadorial uh, life. Uh, and uh, we look forward to having you back in L.A. Uh, it's your hometown. Uh, who am I to invite you to come back to L.A.? <laughs> <laughs> you can. Well, as, as they say, uh, each Passover uh, next year, if confirmed in Delhi. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I look forward to keeping in touch with you too, Zev. And Hope to, uh, if I'm confirmed, uh, really host a lot of L.A. Uh, while I'm in India and can't wait to come back after that. Well, India is on my bucket list, so so, so be, be prepared. Sounds uh, good. I'll, I'll keep the, the tea hot. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Ev. Thank you so much to Mayor Eric Garcetti for spending this time with us on Then and Now. And I want to thank Professor David Myers, who leads the Luskin Center for History and Policy, and to the very able Maya Ferdman, the producer of these podcasts and many other things. And of course, to you, our audience, thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Maya Ferdman, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.